Please turn back in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. And I'll read verses 19 through 26. Verse 19, there arose a division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the words of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the feast of dedication, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe. Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. Last Lord's Day, we began a study in this chapter of John's Gospel. We looked at the two I Am statements of Jesus. The first found there in verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door, by which he meant I am the way of entrance into the kingdom of God. I am the only way of access, the only way of return to the Father, the only mediator between God and man. And the second I am statement of Jesus in this chapter is found in verse 11, where he said, I am the good shepherd. A very clear statement of his divine nature, because God always was the shepherd of his people throughout the Old Testament scripture. And Jesus declares here that that is who he is, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Down in verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And at the end of verse 18, he says, This commandment I received from my Father. This commandment he received to come into the world, to be the door into the kingdom of God, to be the good shepherd of the sheep. This commandment he received from God the Father in the plan of salvation to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and then takes it up again. This statement of Jesus from my Father, once again he declared God to be his own Father and himself to be equal with God. And this statement once again in John's Gospel causes this division among this controversy among the Jewish people who heard it. And as we continue our study this morning in verse 19, our first point is that the words of Jesus bring, always bring division between men. We see in verse 19, there arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. It was because of Jesus' words because of the discourse that he had just given in the previous verses. And those words brought about this division, and it was a division of faith and unbelief between those who believe his words, or at least have some interest to hear more of his words, and those who outright reject his words in unbelief. We notice the word again in verse 19. There arose a division again among the Jews. This was not the first time such a division had arose among them over the words of Jesus. There had been other controversies in John's gospel. This is this one 
of those numerous controversies. Back in John chapter 7 and verse 37, when Jesus stood in the temple at the great feast, the last day of the feast, and he cried out and made that great announcement, that invitation to all men, if anyone is thirsty, he said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But then even after that very gracious invitation of Christ to men for their salvation, John tells us that some of the multitudes said, this is the Christ. But then there were others who were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, from the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. Even that invitation arose, this division. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then we find in John chapter 9, in the previous chapter, we can turn back there, just after Jesus had healed the man who was born blind, we read in verses 15 and 16. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him, the man who had, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And if we were to spend our time tracing out such things here in the Gospels, we would find that this is the way it has always been since the beginning to the end of the ministry of Christ. Wherever he went, his words created divisions among men between those who believed and those who did not believe. And it is the nature of Jesus' words to create such division because they are words of truth in the midst of falsehood. And they are words of light in the darkness of this world. They are living and powerful words And they call men to repentance and to turn from their evil way of life and to come to him in faith. Jesus said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And so wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached, It is inevitable, it cannot be otherwise, that there will always be this division between those who believe and those who do not believe. Jesus came to bring peace among men. He is the Prince of Peace, promised by the prophet Isaiah. At his birth, the angels announced glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Paul could write to the Ephesians in chapter 2, he himself is our peace, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, and his gospel is a gospel of peace. But here we see that it brought division and controversy among men. And the reason for this division cannot be found in Jesus himself, and it cannot be found in his words. The reason for this division is found in the rejection and the unbelief of men. And most often when such division occurs, most take the wrong side of the controversy, which is what happened on this occasion. We read here in verse 20. John tells us, and many. He says, many, which refers to the majority, said he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? But then in verse 21, he says, others, 
Others referring to a relative few in comparison. Others were saying these are not the words of one demon possessed. In verse 20, we see how filled men are with bitter and angry prejudice when they oppose the Lord Jesus. They devise the most malicious falsehoods against him. Jesus was, he is the perfect and holy son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the glory of God the Father. And yet they claim he has a demon and he is insane. Nothing could be further from the truth. All the fullness of the deity dwelt in him in bodily form. And yet they say he has a demon. And not only will they not give him a hearing. They desire to turn others away from hearing him as well. At the end of verse 20, they say to the others, why do you listen to him? A demon-possessed man who is mad, he is not worthy of your attention. We will not listen to him. Why do you? But no matter how great the opposition may be, To the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words and the works of Jesus always justify themselves. And they prove their truth. And so there are always those who desire him and his words. And we read in verse 21 that these others were saying. These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind Can he? The words of Jesus are always meant to bring peace. First peace with God. And then peace among men. And his words never go forth in vain. Some are softened by them. Others are hardened by them. His words are always an aroma of life unto life for some. And an aroma of death unto death for ever's. For, for others, this is the way it has always been in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it is the way it has always been ever since there has always been this division between those who believe and those who do not believe. And if they could cast such words upon Jesus in verse 20. We should not be surprised if they cast such words upon his followers as well. And Jesus has warned us of it. He said, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And this division between belief and unbelief enters into our even into our nearest relations on earth. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 51, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. The division enters into our closest relationships. The peace that Jesus desires and the peace that he came to bring, it will come ultimately in the peace of the new heavens and the new earth. But in this world of sin, his words continue to produce division among men. The second thing we see in our passage is that the Pharisees encircle Jesus in Hostility. The Pharisees encircle Jesus in hostility. In verse 22, John tells us when this took place. It was at the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem. Many believe there was some short period of time between the end of verse 21 and verse 22. And perhaps there was, but only a brief period of time. 
The Feast of the Dedication is not one found in the Old Testament Scripture. This is the only place it is mentioned in the Bible. The background of this feast is that in 167 BC, the ruthless Syrian dictator Antiochus Epiphanes conquered the city of Jerusalem. He banned the Jews from worshiping in the temple. He instituted a terrible persecution against them. And there was a Jewish priest at that time. His name was Judas Maccabeus. And three years later, in 164 BC, he led a revolt against the much stronger Syrian army. He drove them out and he freed the city of Jerusalem. He restored the altar and the worship in the temple and the victory was, and the rededication of the temple, it was commemorated by this annual feast of dedication. Sometimes it, was, it is known as the Feast of Lights. Today it is known as what is called Hanukkah. And it is celebrated in early December, which is why John tells us here in verse 23 that it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The portico of Solomon was an outside colonnade along the side of the temple with a roof hanging over it. It was winter. Jesus was walking along on the outside of the temple. And when John gives us this detail here in his gospel, and he says that it was winter, he probably implies something more than just the season of the year and that it was cold outside he is likely to do that in other passages in the gospel. We see back in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus first came to Jesus, John tells us this man came to him by night, by night, referring to the darkness of the life from which Nicodemus was coming to Jesus. And so when he writes here, it was winter, it may well be that the cold of winter was to symbolize the coldness of the relationship between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees at this time. The coldness that was derived from the hardness of their own hearts. In the beginning of verse 24, we read the Jews therefore gathered around him. The words gathered around him actually mean that they encircled him, they hemmed him in. One man translated it that the Jews closed in on him. It was a hostile, intimidating surrounding of Jesus by his enemies, the Pharisees. They completely surrounded him. Jesus had just condemned them in the earlier passages in this chapter and he had called them hirelings and thieves and robbers of the sheep and he had declared himself to be the good shepherd of the sheep and they were angry at him and they were serious and they encircled him in this aggressive posture all around him at the end of verse 23 John tells us that Jesus was walking in the temple, in the portico of Solomon. But now, in the beginning of verse 24, he tells us the Jews, therefore, were gathered encircling around him. He was walking in the portico of Solomon, but now he has stopped, and he is no longer walking freely. He is now surrounded. He is now encircled by his angry enemies. The threat to Jesus here was very real and frightening. These were the same enemies who had twice, at least twice before, desired his death. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus called God his own father. And John tells us there that for this cause, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They had desired to kill him before, but now all the more. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, they said, but he was also calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. 
Then in John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Before Abraham was born, I am, which meant I am Jehovah from the Old Testament scriptures. And then the next verse says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And in this very chapter, if we look down to verse 31, what do we read? The Jews, at the end of his words now, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This is what they had come for. This was their really their purpose to find a reason to put him to death. For Jesus, this was like walking in a dark alley at night and being surrounded by an angry gang of thugs. A most dangerous situation. The conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees had now come to its boiling point, his public ministry would soon come to an end. He had just called them hirelings, thieves and robbers of the sheep. They were not passing over his words lightly. They were doing what they could now to bring about his end. And soon they would have their desire in his crucifixion on the cross. So we have this picture here of Jesus walking along the outside of the temple in the portico of Solomon, walking freely and peacefully along that portico outside, and suddenly he is stopped, and suddenly he is encircled and surrounded by this angry and violent mob of his enemies. The Jews, therefore, they gathered around him, and now... They accost him, as John tells us in the rest of verse 24. And they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. Their question was not from sincerity. Their question was not out of a desire to learned the truth of who Jesus was. It was rather a hostile question to entrap him in his answer. These were the same people who had just said back in the previous verses, he has a demon and is insane, and why do you listen to him? And now they encircle him in this threatening way to question him. They say, will you not, will you, if you are the Christ, they say, tell us plainly. They claimed they needed more evidence that he was the Christ. If only he would speak more plainly. If only he would speak to us more clearly. Then we could understand who he is and we would believe in him. But the problem lie not in any lack of evidence. For Jesus had already plainly taught them that he was the Christ The problem lie in their own hard and unbelieving hearts. And this is what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. The words and the works of Jesus had already provided abundant evidence that he was the Christ, the Messiah, sent by the Father. Jesus says in the beginning of verse 25, I told you, I have already told you plainly who I am, that I am the Christ. And they had known the words of Jesus on so many occasions. He had called God his own Father back in John chapter 5. He continues to do so. And by calling God his own Father, They knew what it meant that he was declaring himself to be equal with the Father. He was declaring his deity as God. When he said concerning before the birth of Abraham, I am. He was declaring himself to be Jehovah from the Old Testament scriptures. And here he declares himself to be the good shepherd of his sheep the divine shepherd who has come among men. I am the good shepherd. 
And so they have already heard abundant evidence that he is the Christ. I told you, he said, I have already told you. And you do not believe. And then he says, my mighty works that I do in my father's name, that I do to glorify him, that are his will, all of my glorious compassionate and powerful works, all of these, he says, these bear witness of me as well. So you already have this evidence, Jesus says. Everything bears witness to you about who I am. And the problem is not in any lack of evidence, but the problem is in the hardness of their hearts and in their unbelief. We hear the same argument as well today in the world around us. People say we need more evidence that there is a God. They say how long will he keep us in suspense? If he is really there, if he is really there, then why does he not come and speak to us plainly? But he has spoken plainly. In his creation, And in everything that he displays of his power and wisdom in all that he has made, it declares his glory day after day and men are without excuse. And then he has given Holy Scripture so that men may come and hear the Bible and read the Scriptures and find out who Jesus is. There is abundant evidence before men in this world and yet they still do not believe and it could be that this does it often does happen even in the church that men say well we need to hear more sermons before we can come to believe in Jesus we need more truth concerning him we need more light more understanding we do not have enough to believe in him But you do have enough. You do have enough from the Bible. Everyone in this church, our cause of unbelief in anyone's heart is not the lack of evidence. It is the hardness that remains. It is the unbelief. May God help you to turn and to come to Jesus and to believe what you know already. And when you do, he will teach you many more wonderful things concerning himself. And now what happens in the following verses, really beginning verse 25 and down through verse 30, is Jesus begins another shorter discourse. And this brings us to our third point this morning, which is that Jesus asserts his deity. Jesus asserts his deity. The Jews had asked the right question back in the beginning of verse 24. They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That was the great issue then. It is the great issue today. Is Jesus the Christ, the one who has been sent by God the Father into the world to be the Savior of men? And if it is true, as he has said, that he is the I am, the Jehovah of the Bible, and that his mighty works bear witness to all the truth that he spoke, he is the Christ. If it is true, then he must be obeyed. And if anyone is to be saved, he must believe in him. This is the aim of John's entire gospel. His entire gospel is written for this purpose, to show us that Jesus is the Christ. That's what John said in John 20 and verse 31. He said, these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. So the Jews, they have now surrounded him in this hostile, threatening way, and they question him whether he is the Christ. Jesus is not intimidated 
And he does not shrink back in any fear from them. He answers their question and he proves himself to be the Christ by declaring the mighty works of God. And he shows himself here now to be the savior of sinners. They got an answer from him that was clearer and fuller than anything they could have expected. Jesus' argument throughout the following verses is, they've asked him, are you the Christ? And he tells them, he says, this is what I will tell you. I will tell you of my unity with my heavenly Father. I and the Father are one. I will tell you plainly of his plan of salvation in which he has given me a people to be saved. I will tell you of my own power to speak to them and bring them to myself in salvation. And I will tell you that I am the only one who can give them eternal life. And I and my Father, we will guard them, we will protect them to the very end. Jesus' argument now in the following verses is that I am telling you of the mighty works of God in salvation, the works that only God can do. And I am telling you that I am the one who does these works of God. And therefore, I am God himself. I am the Christ who has come down from heaven. And in these words that follow in verses 26 down through verse 30, these words are packed full of most wonderful doctrines of the word of God. It is an interesting thing here and in other parts of John's gospel that we find very clearly set before us what we often call the doctrines of grace. Sometimes they are called the five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace are a summary of the five important doctrines of the word of God in God's way of salvation. We sometimes use the acronym TULIP to describe or to remember these five doctrines. TULIP, the T, stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L for limited atonement. The I for irresistible grace. And P for perseverance of the saints. TULIP, the acronym that helps us to remember these things. These are important doctrines of God's way of salvation. They are central to what we call Reformed theology. We are not saying Jesus was Reformed. What we are saying is that Reformed theology captures the truth that Jesus preached. And that's what we find in these following verses. And so as we proceed down through them, I will call your attention to them. And then this morning and this evening, we will work our way down through verse 30. This morning, we have only time to consider the first of these, which is total depravity. In verse 25, Jesus has told the Jews there that they did not believe in him. You do not believe. Now in verse 26, he tells them the reason for their unbelief. Verse 26, he says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And what lies behind Jesus' words here is that teaching of the scripture that we call total depravity, the first of the five doctrines of grace. By total depravity, we do not mean that men and women are as bad as they can possibly be or that they go about committing the worst kinds of evil they possibly can. Neither do we mean that they are unable to do any outward good in the eyes of their fellow man. In God's common grace, there are things which restrain our evil and there are things that promote being good outwardly. By total depravity, we rather refer to the fact that sin has infected every part of our being. 
We are not partially fallen by the sin of Adam. We are totally fallen in all of our faculties, in our bodies, in our minds, in our wills, and in our affections. Every aspect of our personality has been corrupted by sin. There is no part of our being which has not been penetrated and come under the power of sin. Our fall in Adam was a total fall. We were not wounded. We were not wounded. We were ruined in relation to God. Sin dwells in the very depths of our hearts. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is impossible for us to live without sinning. Birds fly in the air because it is their nature. Fish swim in the water because it is their nature. And we as fallen men and women, we sin because it is our nature. The Bible tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are slaves of sin by nature. We are blind to God. We are deaf to his word. We are captives of the evil one. Our minds are darkened. And we are at enmity with God. And we'll turn to one verse in this regard back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll turn forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for just a a second and look at this verse. Verse Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul tells us here, but a natural man... A man has, he is born into this world apart from any work of God in salvation. A natural man, as we come into the world, he does not accept. He does not accept. He does not believe in the things of the Spirit of God. He does not accept the truth of the gospel, for they are foolishness to him, he says. And he cannot understand them. He has no ability. He has no Mental capacity to understand these things. He cannot, it is impossible for him to understand them from himself as a man, a natural man, because they are spiritually appraised. And so Paul makes a very clear statement there of our total inability to receive the truth of the gospel. We turn back to John chapter 10. And being, as we have described, dead in our sins, being enslaved, being deaf and blind, captives in darkness at enmity with God. What all of this means is that the natural man, he has no ability, he has no capacity to do anything in relationship to God and his own salvation. He is unable to even believe in the gospel in Jesus for himself. A dead man has no power within him to do anything. All we must do to be saved is to look unto Jesus. That's what God tells us in Isaiah chapter 45, he says, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, all we need to do for our salvation is to look and we shall be saved. And we might think surely all of us can do this, we can simply look. But a dead man, he cannot open his eyelids And he has no power of sight within himself. He is dead. He is not even able to look and to believe in Jesus, in himself. 
This is what total depravity has done to us, our fall into sin. By nature, we cannot believe. And this is what Jesus is telling the Pharisees in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe. And why do you not believe? Because you are not of my sheep. We notice the order in which Jesus makes these statements. He does not say, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And what he is saying is that being among my sheep must be first. It is the prerequisite. It is what must take place first. And then out of that, the result of being my sheep is that you will believe. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He implies that if they were of his sheep, they would believe because his sheep do believe. But because they are not of his sheep, therefore they do not believe. They thought the reason for their unbelief was that Jesus had not spoken plainly enough to them. They needed more instruction. They needed more evidence before them. No, no, Jesus tells them your unbelief can be traced to something much higher. It is that you are not among my sheep and only my heavenly father could have made you to be among my sheep. As he says in verse 29, my father who has given them to me. There's how one becomes his sheep. The father gives them to the son. We may think of it this way. We have two groups of people in this world. We have the sheep of Jesus and we have those who are not sheep. The characteristic of the sheep is that they believe. And the characteristic of those who are not his sheep is that they do not believe. And the only one who makes the difference between them is God the Father, who must and is the only one who can make them among his sheep. In the first half of the verse, Jesus states who we all are by nature. By our sinful depravity, unable to believe, with no, ex- no ability to exercise faith, he says, but you do not believe. And the only thing that can rescue us from that unbelief is what the Father himself alone can do to make us among his sheep. Because you are not of my sheep. We find a similar truth back in John's Gospel in chapter 6. And we'll just turn there for a moment. John chapter 6 and verse 44. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus says in the beginning of verse 44, he says, No one, no one can come to me. He means no one has the ability from within himself to believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him, unless the Father works in him, unless the Heavenly Father gives him new spiritual life, gives him eyes to see, ears to hear, draws him by the Holy Spirit, makes him able, makes him willing to believe. No one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. In unbelief, we are all in unbelief because of our sinful nature. The only one who can alter our unbelief is God the Father and his drawing power. Faith is the gift of God. Unless the Father draws him, it's really the same thing that Jesus says back in Chapter 10 and verse 26. Unless the Father gives them to me as the shepherd and then draws them to me. So this is the effect of our fall into sin that we are in this state of unbelief that can only be overcome by the Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus is really teaching back in chapter 10 
and verse 26, where he says, chapter 10, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are still in your natural state and the power of the sinful nature. It is true that every man is responsible and every man will be held accountable for his unbelief. And unbelief is our fault by our love of sin. It has made us unbelieving and the only one who can alter it is God the Father. William Hendrickson an excellent commentator, he writes on this verse. He says, those who listen to Christ's voice and follow him do so because they were given and drawn. And those who are not able to listen to him or to follow him remain in this state of inability because it has not pleased God to rescue them from the condition into which they, by their own guilt, have plunged themselves So we notice this morning, as we close our time, and then we will pick up where we have left off this evening, that the first of the doctrines of grace have to do with the condition of mankind. What has happened to the human race by the entrance of sin? And how bad has been our fall into sin? And are we able do we have any capacity from ourselves anymore to do anything in regard to our salvation? That's the question that is answered by this first of the doctrines of grace. The answer comes back from the Bible with a resounding no, that we have no such ability. The fall has brought us into a total spiritual ruin and left us dead and helpless and at enmity with God, unable to do anything, even to believe in the Son of God for our salvation. Two applications we close with here this morning. And the first is, how contrary is this, is the Bible, to the modern view of man? People today believe, even many, and even according to recent polls, a majority among evangelical churches believe that man is basically good in our nature. Whatever wrong there might be among us, whatever wrong, whatever evil there is in us, we can heal it. We can heal it ourselves and we can ultimately make ourselves better. All we need to do is to believe in ourselves and we can do anything. Some more positive thinking, some more government programs, some more many money spent upon us. We are evolving. We are evolving. And all we need is a little more time and we will make ourselves better, and we will improve ourselves. Everything will be well. But the doctrine of total depravity shows us how false this humanistic kind of thinking really is, that we have fallen, and we are bound in this state of slavery to sin and darkness, and in ourselves there is no such hope. The second thing we close our time with this morning is that salvation must come to us by grace. That's why these doctrines are called the doctrines of grace. Because it must come to us by the grace of God, by the unmerited favor of God upon us who are sinners who do not deserve anything. And yet he comes to us in free, sovereign mercy and grace. If no one can believe in the gospel from himself, by his own strength, the question is, who can possibly be saved? The only remedy for our desperate condition 
It must lie outside of ourselves. It must be found in God and in him alone and in what he can do. We cannot heal ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves. Our healing must come from above. If he does not act, if he does not come to us and do a great work, then we have no hope and we all perish in our sin. And so the first of the five points, the first of the five doctrines concern man, his total depravity, his total inability, and they leave us in a most desperate place which is what the Bible really does. But now, the rest of the five points, they point us to God and what he will do and what he has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer comes in the rest of the five points. In everything that Jesus will now declare in verses 27 down through verse 30. That God has done great and wonderful things for us. Things that are unimaginable. Things that we could never comprehend. He has made a way of salvation for us out of love and mercy for us. He will not let the whole human race perish in its sin. He will demonstrate his love and mercy. He will make a way of salvation. And he has made a way of salvation which is easy. It is a way of salvation that is certain and sure. It is a way of salvation that meets every need we have because of our desperate fall into sin. A full, complete recovery for time and for eternity. And it is a way of comfort And we'll see tonight it is a way of hope, a way of peace. And so we close our time this morning with that. And we have something to look forward to tonight when we gather again to hear the words of Jesus. Let us pray. Father and gracious God in heaven, Thank you for the word of the living God. Thank you for the truth that is found in it. And though sometimes the truth is hard for us to hear, hard to grasp, yet it does explain the world in which we live. O Lord, give us light, give us understanding that we might embrace all that you have said. And we pray that you would be pleased to teach us these things from heaven. Be our good shepherd who teaches us the truth of the word of God. We pray you would bless your word and use it for good in each one of us. Even for salvation in those who do not believe. We we ask that you would hear us and bless now tonight, today. In Jesus' name, amen.